Hi there, I'm Cynthia Choya. I'm one of the hosts of the Global Surgery Series of ENT in a Nutshell. Uh, today we'll be recording an episode on the global burden of ENT disease, and we have two very special guests today. Um, one is Dr. Jen Saunders, and the other is Dr. Sam Okirosi. I'll be introducing Dr. Samuel Okirosi, or Sam. A special welcome to him. He's actually from my home country of Kenya. He is an ENT surgeon. He serves mainly a rural community with a high burden of head and neck conditions. He completed his medical school and residency at the University of Nairobi. He is the co-chair of the Global Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery Initiative, an international working collaboration of ENTs, trainees, and students across the world with a focus on advocacy, advocacy-driven ENT research. He is also one of the organizers of the Malindi Head and Neck Surgical Camp, which has been running for over 10 years with surgeons attending from across East Africa. Welcome, Sam. Thank you so much, Cynthia. And I'm Josh Wiederman, Cynthia's co-host for today. Uh, and it's a real pleasure to have both uh, Sam and Jim here. I work with both of them quite frequently in the Global OHNS Initiative. But Dr. Jim Saunders is a past coordinator for international affairs and chairman of the Humanitarian Efforts Committee uh, with the American Academy of Otolaryngology. And he currently serves on the steering committee of the World Hearing Forum with the WHO. He co-founded the Mayflower Medical Outreach, which is an NGO that supports otolaryngology and audiology in Nicaragua, as well as the Coalition for Global Hearing Health, uh, which is an international organization devoted to education and advocacy for hearing health services in low resource areas. Jim has a wealth of knowledge in the global field, a wealth of experience, both as a 40,000 foot view of, of the issues, as well as on the ground, uh, especially in, in otology and audiology. And so, Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Great honor to be here with all of you. So, Cynthia, why don't you jump into it? Okay. First, I think we need to get into some definitions so that we all have a shared understanding of um, what global burden of disease is. So, can you help us understand how the global burden of any disease is calculated or estimated? I guess I'll take a stab at this one. And just remember, you don't have an hour to answer this, even though I know you could speak for a week on this topic. So, well, imagine this is, this is a little question. This is a little tiny yeah. question. <laughs> yeah, we'll start with the simplest question and explain <laughs> this very complicated algorithm. But if you could, like, if you could break it down in a three-minute discussion of what global burden of disease or burden of disease is. So this global burden of disease concept is a, is a concept that was actually born in the 90s. And the, basically the idea is to try to have some way of quantifying, you know, exactly that, the burden of disease across the world and across different different contexts, uh, uh, you know, both low resource countries and, and high resource countries. And they, they you know, there's a, a series of reports uh, on the global burden of disease and, and it is, is currently managed, the project is primarily managed out of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation in Washington, D.C. at the University of Washington. And essentially, what the global burden of disease does is looks at the prevalence of disease in a given country 
and then looks at the disability that's caused by that disease. And this is where the DALIs come in. So DALIs is Disability Adjusted Life Year. And the idea here is that there's a set weight of disability for different disease states. And so by looking at the prevalence and then multiplying that by the disability weight for that given disease, then that that gives you an estimate of what the burden of the disease of that disease is for the country. And then add all that up and you get a global burden of disease. And I think the the problem here is that there's frequently not a full set of data. So you're there's a lot of extrapolation that goes on uh, trying, you know, uh, to extrapolate to similar. If you have data from one country, you extrapolate that to, to other countries which have similar economic health care situations, regional context, etc. And by doing that on a repetitive format over and over again, you eventually get to an estimate, which is all these ever are, is an estimate of the burden of disease for the, for the world. How was that? Was that under three minutes? Yeah, I, I actually wasn't watching at the time because I was so enthralled with your response. <laughs> um, so, so give me give me an example of this when it comes to the hearing world. You know, let's arbitrarily give otitis media. You know, one of the most common problems in the entire world. What's its dally? If you were to you know make up a number and and compare that to let's say laryngeal cancer and and how does that compare and what do those numbers mean compared to each other i think first before we go there if i may so the dally is is made up of years lost to the disease and years lived with the disease and so that if you if you think about it, i think most people are familiar with a quality so for a for a quality is you know quality adjusted life years well, a dally is just exactly the inverse of that. So, in a quality, the you know a fully lived uh, life with no disease and no downside is is one, and and a loss of life is zero. And a dally is just exactly the opposite. Uh, so, in a dally, uh, a a death is one, and a and a life without any disability and any disease is a zero. So, you get to the dally number. By two ways, either you either you have a disability and the number of years that you live with that disability, that disease, or you die from that disability. Can't think of a more gentle way to say it. You die from that from that disease process, rather, and then the it's the number of years that you would have lived if you hadn't had that. So it's a combination of those two things. And so for most of the diseases that we deal with, laryngeal cancer being a notable exception. So for hearing loss and otitis media, for the most part, it's years live with the disease because hearing loss is rarely fatal. So when you look at the, by far the big player here is hearing loss, sort of uncategorized hearing loss. And, and it accounts to about 40 million, million dallies. And all of that is years live with disease. And otitis media by comparison is about three and a half million or so, r- roughly a tenth of that. Uh, laryngeal cancer is about two or three thousand, so it's much, much less because it's much. You can lose your life to laryngeal cancer, but by comparison to otitis media being extraordinarily prevalent, uh, laryngeal cancer much more serious, but much less prevalent. Yeah, and that's an interesting perspective, and, and very well put, where you have a disease that presents 
very dramatically in laryngeal cancer, difficulty breathing, difficulty speaking, coughing up blood. And you would see that as a very prominent issue in any country. But that's the importance of understanding burden of disease is you can realize that a disease can present subtly and cause subtle issues. But if it does so over an entire lifetime, that disability it creates is really terrible for a society. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you for that discussion, Dr. Sanders. I think it really um, clarifies what those definitions mean. Um, and for you, Sam, how does that manifest itself in Kenya and in your practice setting, uh, those concepts of disability-adjusted life years when it comes to something like otitis media versus laryngeal cancer? Thank you, Cynthia. Um, yeah, uh, thanks, Jim, for the definition on the, the global burden of disease and how it's calculated. And to put it in perspective, in my area of practice, which is in uh, Machakos in Kenya, the figures do assist in probably planning and policy, though the challenge is, as uh, Dr. or as Jim mentioned, is how the figures are arrived at. They're probably just um, mostly extrapolations in areas where the data is uh, not available. So in my setting, some of the data that is used to calculate the global burden of um, diseases are just not recorded. Now, just to go back to my local setting is I may tend to see more of laryngeal cancers or head and neck cancers because probably it could be due to the health-seeking behavior of the patients that um, are in our population that they would come in when they have upper airway obstruction or neck masses, for example, and uh, we tend to miss out on maybe pediatric hearing loss when a child has uh, fluid in the middle ear or otitis media. So in my setting, I, I suspect we are picking up very little otitis media, and I would just theorize on that, though the data and the recording is also a challenge. I think that's an excellent point. I know I was just going to say, I think that Sam just hit the nail on the head. And, you know, I think, well, for one thing, when you're the doctor treating the patient, it doesn't really matter what the, where the, you know, where the global burden of disease is. But I think that if the data is only flawed, is inherently flawed by what we are able to see and what we're able to see, you know, for example, Sam, you mentioned the the pediatric otitis media. I'm guessing there's no screening programs for for otitis media in your in your community. I'm guessing that nobody's going to the schools regularly and checking kids' ears. No, we do not have that. Um, unless you're doing a study, that doesn't does it happen in the states? Oh yes, uh, and uh, you know, so I think it's so the the people that you're seeing are the people with the cancers that are coming into you. And I just think it's a, you know, if you don't have the resources to look for these things, then we won't have the data to really know how prevalent they are. You know, so if you don't have ENT at all in a region, uh, you're not going to have any ENT disease because there's not going to be anybody there to, to treat it or recognize it. Right. So in the absence of that capability, so in, in most of the world, we don't have the high quality of data that the burden of disease program uses to extrapolate what high-income country burden of disease is. 
So in absence of that data, what is the best way to say, okay, for, for those of us that are interested in, in performing or participating in global surgery, and we want to go to Zimbabwe, how do we know what conditions need to be treated? Do we use the algorithms from high-income data and burden of disease program to extrapolate to what might exist in Zimbabwe? Do we do a screening ahead of participating there and trying to find disease? Or is there some in between? I'd love to to hear from you first, Samuel, and then... then... Yeah, I I want to hear Sam's response to this. Yeah, well, I think one is to... um get uh, the perspective of the the local team and probably this could be through surveys where you ask them what are the um, common diseases you treat um, now common diseases that they treat versus um, what they would want addressed may be different um, so uh, you could ask them what diseases they think uh, causes the highest burden of disease that they would want addressed. Um, and I, I think they would be able to give a perspective of what the priority areas are. Um, I, I think in a nutshell, that is it. And uh, in, more in the long term is to encourage um, a system of collecting data that is replicable in all settings so that um, as we calculate the burden of diseases in all areas, then um, the data is robust and it's um, well collected, hopefully full, full data. And um, and those those would be the main ways to go about it. And Jim, rebuttal? Rebuttal? No, I agreement. I I think that's exactly right. I think you'd be foolish to. So I, I, let me let me. I, I do think that the global burden of disease has utility at that high level, at trying to drive policies, at trying to initiate change with the you know healthcare administration you know officials. Uh, I think it has utility that the DALI has utility to look at cost effectiveness and compare diseases across different countries and across regions. Um, but, but I think you'd be foolish, uh, to use that as your assumption of what you're going to find when you're kind of boots on the ground. Um, you know, Sam says uh, the the best, the best people that are going to tell you that are the people that are working in that, in that sphere already. And and that just kind of goes to the, to my number one rule when you've, when you're doing this kind of work is you, you have to connect with local partners you have to connect with people that are actually know the real story about what's going on the ground not the you know not the theoretical story i have a i I can i was thinking about an example that i could give um from my own personal experience working in in nicaragua and when i first went there i thought well i'm going to see a lot of kids with with uh, fluid and so I'm going to need to take a bunch of tubes with me. And when I got there, I didn't, I, I think I've probably put in less than half a dozen tubes in Nicaragua ever 
in 20 years of, of working there. And the reason is because all of those eardrums are perforated. <laughs> all of those kids that have chronic infections that we would be putting tubes in in the United States are perforated by the time they get to me. So the tubes, we're past that point. And so that's a great example of me having an assumption about what I was going to find. And when I got there, it was completely different. And by the same token, if by based on our surgical experience, we would assume that conductive hearing loss and middle ear disease was a big player. But, but when we started actually doing audiograms and we've looked at our audiogram data over the, well, I guess the first 15 years of our project, about 5,000 audiograms, sensory neural hearing loss by far the most common thing that we see even in the children. And so, you know, that would be something that would be completely invisible to us as surgeons if we were just going in and just doing surgery. I mean, you'd, you'd think if you hung out with us in a week doing surgery there that, that everybody in the country had cholesteatomas. But reality is those are just the ones that are presenting. They're not, they're not the, the disease that is kind of beneath the surface. So, so to Sam's second point, I think collecting data in a rigorous, in a rigorous way and really kind of looking is really the only way to, to get some better idea about what's, what's really going on. Yeah, I think that's a, an excellent point. Um, something that I appreciated when I lived abroad uh, was that conundrum there. We're all very familiar with the three delay model uh, in which patients are delayed in seeking and receiving care. So there was this phenomenon that would happen. And, and Jim, it sounds like you experienced the same thing. I'm curious to hear if you have too, Samuel. But once you go into an area that had been previously underserved and you increase access to a, a, a myriad of diseases that can now be treated, like cholesteatoma, draining ear, laryngeal cancer, you start to see presentations of all types, where if there had been data previously collected on these diseases, there would not be a very high number of them because patients did not know they could be treated. But now that the knowledge has surfaced that they can be treated, these patients are coming in to seek care. And you know, this is what I consider the, the unseen burden of disease that hides between statistics. And I'm curious to hear your guys' opinions on that too. Samuel, do you see that in, in Kenya in your practice? Oh yes, uh, we do. Um, and especially um, in a situation where probably the workforce is uh, not as um, as big, uh, we tend to have maybe a new ENT surgeon sent to a certain county, for example, and um, maybe the last ENT surgeon there was 10 years ago. Um, and as you start, the clinic numbers are maybe four or five patients and uh, you give it about six months to eight months then the clinic numbers suddenly spike to 40 50 patients um and as you said i think it's just awareness uh, that the services could be offered both to the patients and to your fellow colleagues as well so that they know uh, what conditions to refer and um, i'll give you a practical example uh, for quite some time um, you know, a patient's elderly male with upper airway obstruction would, um, you know, would have noisy breathing and some 
people would confuse that as um, a wheeze, that, that the gentleman has developed a wheeze and his old age, uh, and you know, they would start with uh, nebulize the patient, give him uh, inhalers and uh, nothing is working to a point that they eventually they find out that, oh, he actually has upper airway obstruction. Um, and the more that people are, both from the clinician side, or the ENT side, where you actually raise awareness on um, some of the conditions that you can treat, uh, and the clinicians around you knowing what you can, can treat, and eventually the patients as well, then you get to, to pick up the diseases God willing, Ali, and, and treat them. So yes, I, I totally agree with you, Josh, that uh, uh, there is an unseen burden of disease. Jim, what are your thoughts? Well, I was when I was reflecting on this call uh, prior, you know, I was looking at the, and knowing that this sort of question about how well global burden of disease actually predicts what's happening in the real world. Uh, my, I made a list of things. And the first thing on my list is workforce uh, exclamation point, <laughs> you know, because I think just Samuel just said it perfectly. You know, if you don't have, if you don't have the workforce there to pick up the disease and treat the disease, you're not going to see it. It's, I think I, I agree a hundred percent. I had, I had a question for Samuel, if I may. Uh, so uh, one of the things that I've seen in Nicaragua with hearing loss is a lot of variation between communities. Um, and, you know, for example, in, in your setting, perhaps in the urban communities in Nairobi versus where you're working now, or what we've seen with hearing loss, even in, um, even in, you know, villages that are just a few kilometers apart, that there may be very different uh, rates of disease, different presentations. And I'm wondering if you see that kind of micro variation. I think this kind of gets to the point that there's this, there is this, at some point, this underlying assumption that, you know, that uh, all low and middle income countries are this kind of even playing field. And I, and, and I, I do think that the, Burden of Disease Projects tries to account for some of that, um, but but I see a lot more variability than I do similarities between, um, at least for hearing loss in a lot of the in a lot of the places in the world that seem at the surface to be pretty closely related. And I'm wondering if you see that kind of micro variation. Are there certain communities that come in particularly with certain types of cancers or certain high prevalence of certain types of cancers? Um, yeah, we do get that. And um, I'll give you an example. Um, laryngeal cancer may be more prevalent in certain regions of the country um, through, you know, some um, small studies where we, 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 we basically, we, if, we, if we pick the number of patients coming from a region from our main referral hospital, especially when, um, you know, ENT services or few far and between, or ENT head and neck cancer treatment was um, far between within the counties, then you'd see that uh, the referrals to the main um, uh, national hospital, certain regions would have more laryngeal cancers, um, and other regions would have more um, um, hypopharyngeal cancers. So um, we did actually see a variation 
based on the different regions and um, just grouping everything in one 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 group uh, you might miss that out uh, yeah true yeah I think that you know just the just to suggest that everybody in Kenya has this same risk of a certain disease is a, it's it's a it's a bit simple <laughs> But Jim, do you think do you think the data is good enough? Uh, if we were to look at the United States, for example, is you know if we were to pick an area where that data didn't exist, let's just say Montana, uh, do you think that the burden of disease for the United States would apply to that subpopulation in Montana? Uh, no, I, uh, <laughs> you put me on the spot. No, I, I think that I think that probably the same thing's true in high-income countries as it is in low-income countries. I don't, I don't doubt that. I guess my point is that if you are, if you're, if if you're a policymaker and you're looking at the GBD data to try to make decisions about where you put your healthcare priorities, uh, then you have to kind of look at a, a at a national level and, and accept that there's some averaging there, right? But if you're if you're going in to treat uh, you know to to try to treat or improve the causes of disease or or address the burden of disease in a specific population in a specific community, uh, the the national statistics might not hold. So I think you you have to be more sensitive to the to the micro environment in which you're working in. And, and which is exactly back to Samuel's earlier point, where if you really want to know what's going on, ask the people that work there. Yep, absolutely. And <laughs> I, I think that everyone would admit that this is a growing knowledge base in that every single data point we obtain from anywhere in the world is going to add to the strength of, of an algorithm for, for this purpose. And, and so although... We have a lot of data in high-income countries. We can't necessarily extrapolate that to Kenya or Zimbabwe, but we can start to do so once we collect data in those regions. Um, you know, the, I see this as is something that is important currently for the reasons that you talk about, Jim, and will become more and more important as people continue to add data to it. And so, to bring it to um the level of people like myself who are new to global surgery, it seems like there's a lot of nuance to applying um, the global burden of disease data at the clinical level. How should we go about interpreting this data and looking at it in terms of guiding our activities abroad if we want to participate in global surgery? Don't all speak Samuel. at once. <laughs> <laughs> That's either of you. You can answer that. <laughs> How do you feel like this is useful in Kenya? I think one data is extremely important. Um, I mean, I, I completely agree with um, the concept of the global burden of disease of generating the data that is necessary for planning and also to compare diseases and also uh, mostly prioritizing the areas to, to focus on. Um, I also like the fact that the data is generated um, periodically so it it tends to be updated quite regularly um, now how to use the data I would um, 
put it in context, I would take the global burden of disease, but I think um, there's the element of like national burden of disease, or if you could also detect regional burden of disease and see how the variability happens and see what factors lead to the variability and um, what, what you can address about those factors. So I would say uh, more research, more research is required, <laughs> <laughs> especially at a very at a local level. There has to be a starting point. Um, I would not um, say that do not proceed with the data that you have. I would say start off, but keep researching, keep comparing the data, finding what the differences are, and I think it will just make the um, the, the global burden of disease data more robust. The more the more studies that we have out, especially from um, regions with um, not as much data. Okay. And I think that goes back to the point you made earlier about um, not just accepting the blanket data under global burden of disease, but really asking about what the burden of disease in that area or region of interest that you're looking to go to um, what that specifically is to just make your goals more specific to where you're aiming to go. And I think that this uh, group is particularly exciting because in each of our podcasts at the bottom, there will be links to academic information that supplements this material. Um, but primary sources are actually going to be coming from our uh, from our guest today. Um, so as a, as a wonderful educational background in burden of disease within ENT, Jim has a fantastic paper that uh, we'll link here. And it really, it, 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 for me, it served as an educational foray into what uh, burden of disease means and how it's calculated. Um, and then Sam, as he was talking about before and being uh, quite humble is is realizing that if this data can't be extrapolated, you need to figure out your own answer, and that's what Sam led the charge for with the Global OHNS Initiative in trying to define: Are there different diseases we should be focused on by doing a Delphi method that will be published very soon? And that link will also be here below, so we'll kind of get a, a well-rounded view of ways to tackle the idea of burden of disease, and especially when applied globally. So um, I wanted to thank all of you for joining. It's an excellent conversation. And give any, uh, any time for any final comments. Go ahead, Sam. Oh, no. Um, well, no, I would say thank you so much for having me, uh, Josh. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Cynthia. Uh, Jim as well. Um, it's it's always a pleasure. I think we first met in Zimbabwe <laughs> a while back as a, as a resident during uh, some of the activities that you had, uh, an outreach and also a temporal bone dissection course. And um, I think um, just global surgery and uh, global burden of ENT diseases, um, the focus um, is is good. The, the, the heart is in the right place. And um, we just need to build off what has already been done to just make the data more robust and uh, meaningful.
Thank you, Sam. And, and Jim, as our as our resident gray-haired person in the room, final <laughs> thoughts? <laughs> well, I, I, uh, Sam, I do remember that uh, our, our first meeting, and you know, now I feel like you've far exceeded me in your expertise here. So uh, it's it's a great honor. Um, uh, the you know, I, I I I just I think I would echo uh, what Samuel's said. Then, in that you know, more data. And also, but but also using that data to advocate for for change. And I think this is something that that really needs to come from within the countries that we work. But partnering with with uh, uh, you know partnering with local um, collaborators, uh, building better data, and then and then advocating for better you know policies that that affect change uh, with within the countries that we work. That's 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 the key to me. It's a two-sided thing. We have to use the data for to make the world a better place. I'm glad we let you talk last. That was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much both uh, to Sam and Jim for all your insights and all your experience. That's really valuable and we're uh, really happy to be able to share it on this platform. This podcast series was created by Cynthia Choya and Josh Wiedemann. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as the editing, writing, and production teams for making this episode possible. Look in the description of this episode for a link to additional resources, such as a written summary of the episode and citations for references that were made to key global surgery articles. Visit headmirror.com global surgery podcast for the full list of our episodes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.